Listener Production. I'm Action Alexa, former college American football player and wrestler turned half Ironman competitor. I've recovered from alcoholism and managed to die on the operating table four times. And now I'm a strength coach and motivational speaker. And I'm Jenna Louise, an ex-competitive gymnast and BMX racer, now a multidisciplined, high-performance athlete and coach. Over the course of our careers within the fitness industry, we've seen firsthand the impact that physical strength and mental toughness can have in changing the course of people's lives. In our podcast, How Fitness Saved My Life, we invite people to share the stories and practical skills of how they built their physical, mental and emotional fitness and how that saved them at the hardest time of their life. When the doctor told me this was my life sentence, I then went, well, how far can I push this? All I had ever wanted to do and had defined myself as was a stunt performer. If I wasn't a stunt woman anymore, who was I? Born in Adelaide, our guest today grew up adventuring in the outback until a car accident at 19 left her with a fractured spine and flat on her back in hospital for three months, with doctors telling her she would never be active again. This was a life sentence that Kai Fano was not prepared to accept, and it was then that her determination and love of nature inspired her to use rock climbing as a tool for recovery. Since then, she's gone from strength to strength. She's won the World Tourist Stunt Award for the Best Female Stunt Performer. She's successfully navigated a 100-mile hike over the Sierra Nevada with only a pocket knife, and she's survived 21 days in the Amazon alone, bleeding into piranha-infested waters. She's an A-list Hollywood stunt woman, an extreme survivalist with her own TV show, the author of the first-ever survival guide written by a woman, and in my humble opinion, the female equivalent to Crocodile Dundee... Welcome, Kai. <laughs> I like that one. That's the first time anyone's called me Crocodile Dundee. Usually it's the female equivalent to Bear Grylls, so I'm going to go with that one. Yes. Yeah. Ah, nailed it. Love it. You did. Nailed I'm it. so glad I went for that choice. <laughs> Look, I, I think we have ascertained from that intro that you are crazy. I mean, good crazy, but crazy. <laughs> Are your parents just as wild? Like, where did the crazy come from? Like, talk us through your childhood. No, my parents are not just as wild (laughs) at all. I was definitely the black sheep of this little family. They did enjoy the outdoors. I did grow up in a small outback town in the mid-north of South Australia. It had about a population of 100. Mum and Dad were the teachers at the tiny little school there, so there was about 20 students in the entire school. And so my weekends were sort of like... A group of kids would get together and anyone who had bikes, you know, we'd like double, like dinky each other or tow a little trailer. <laughs> dinky, do you know double? I remember I don't double know what, dinking, what yes. they call it. Yes, yes. Double yes. dinky, yes. right? Yeah. <laughs> so you'd like, you'd double someone and you'd all be on bikes and you'd head off in a direction and mum and dad would just follow the dust at lunchtime <laughs> and give us some hot dogs or something and then we'd just have to be back by, by dark. So, you know, I did have a bit of an adventurous upbringing and then we moved to another town and I got a horse and... And again, the same thing. As long as I was back by dark, I was kind of good to go. So I would ride off with a saddle and a helmet on and I'd take the saddle off as soon as I was out of sight and take the helmet off and bareback oh ride through the, through the scrub all day. And, yeah, so I grew up adventurous, but I don't think my parents were necessarily that adventurous. Isn't that crazy, though? Like I remember, like, being little as well. I was talking about obviously going to the Derby and stuff and horse riding 
when you're little, you have no fear. Like you just, you don't even think about it. You get on without a bridle, without a saddle, without a helmet. You don't think about falling off. Now I get on. I'm like, oh my God, please don't leave me on the side of the road. hundred <laughs> percent. And, and equally, I remember, I mean, everything you were saying, I'm like, that's my childhood except on BMX bike. Yeah. You know, like I was super adventurous when I was young and I, yeah. same thing. As soon as I get around the corner, helmet comes off. I'm straight on the bike, you know, like adventure kid through and through. So yeah. look, you were you were 19 when you had your car accident and essentially broke your back. Your doctors told you that you were most likely never to be active again. Mm. What was your first reaction to this? How did you handle it? I mean, I, I'm pretty calm in those sort of situations. So like I'd heard my back crack and I was like, oh. you know, so I was the one where like everyone's like, get out of the car, get out of the car. And I was like, you know what, I'm just going to sit here till the ambulance comes. And then the ambulance came and I'm like, hey, look, I think I've broken my back, you know. <laughs> so I was really calm. And then I remember the nurses saying to each other sort of outside that like, she hasn't really done anything because if she had, she'd be way more riled up about it, you know. And I was just like, look, <laughs> I just I had my sister's oh my- jacket on and they wanted to cut it off and I was like my sister's gonna kill me like you're gonna have to figure out a way to like get this jacket off without cutting it (laughs) so I mean I'm I'm fairly calm when these things are going on but I do remember you know the doctor said I'd broken a bone and I'm like well that's six weeks right you know thinking that's how long a bone takes to heal and I remember him saying well you know do you play sport and I was like yeah I play tennis and he's like well you probably won't be able to do that ever again and then I remember just just being like, what? You know, I do remember I probably had one little tear came down the corner of my eye, very Hollywood dramatic for a second. And then I was like, <laughs> nah, like it, it, I didn't even entertain it from the very first minute of it. I was just like, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but I, I don't think so. <laughs> so you didn't believe it. You didn't let that belief sink into you that you'd never be active again. No, I, I don't think so. Like I was very, very fortunate. Mum and dad um, was sort of hippie positive vibe affirmation people growing up so they were just like you know you can do what you believe you can do and you know positive mindset's the best Mm -hmm. and and so I'd I'd had that sort of instilled in me from a very very early age and I think I was just like well we'll see you know like we'll see. (laughs) God there's something to be said for building resilience really early on. Yeah. You said that rock climbing was like the tool that you use to recover now when I think about recovery, it's not really the first sport that I go to, <laughs> you know. But <laughs> why rock climbing? I had a crazy Icelandic best friend <laughs> and he was a rock climber. And, you know, he came up and visited me a few times and I think it really disturbed him to see me lying there. And he would do things like get me visualising trips that I could do when I was better and and he'd sort of got me thinking beyond this injury. But then he was like, you know what, let's go rock climbing. He said it, it works every muscle in your body. It's the net, like same as swimming. Swimming works every muscle in your body. He said, I think it'd be really great for your healing. Yeah. And he said, and you need to get outside. And so I went and I took it really carefully, like he he kind of kept it really tight and I just did slow stuff to begin with. But it really did work, you know, like I think part of the bonus of it is you do get a pretty strong back as well as arms and legs and everything else. But it just really helps strengthen those muscles around that area. And the interesting thing for me now is when this exact same injury occurs, doctors don't put you in a bed anymore. They don't make you bed rest. They don't put you in a brace. And they definitely don't say that this is it for the rest of your life. They get you moving and they strengthen that back. So 
we were doing exactly the right thing we needed to do. We were just ahead of our time. That's crazy that you considered rock climbing and not swimming because that's something that I feel like you would go mm. straight to is swimming, right? Yeah. But then all of a sudden I'm out of the blue comes rock climbing, which was just so <laughs> random and it happened to be the right thing for you. It's funny though, isn't it? Like cause rock climbing is one of those things too that you are you have to be present like at every single yeah. moment, right? Like because if you're, I mean, I'm assuming you have ropes, you're not like completely freaking bonkers. Yeah. Um, but, you know, like if you didn't, it'd be one of those things that if you have like a, oh, shit moment, I mean, you're probably dead. So being out in nature and using every muscle in your body and actually forcing yourself to be present with every movement Mm. that you took, like there's something to be said for that too. Yeah, I mean, mum always says to me even now, she's like, you need to meditate. And I'm like, well, climbing is my meditation because you do, and movement is my meditation. Like I'll do yoga as my meditation because every – Every movement I'm there for, you know, like I don't have the brain capacity and space to be able to be like, well, hang on a minute, I'm thinking of this. Like I'm there present for everything. And that's the same with climbing. So I don't climb without ropes, but I do what's called lead climbing. So you go up with the rope tied to you. You don't have a rope tied above you. So you put pieces in the rock as you're climbing and they become your anchors as you go up. So. It, you have to be 100% there for every moment. So I, I agree with that, yeah. Look, you've turned this love of adventuring, I'm going to say, into your, like, first career by becoming an adventure guide. So can you tell us a little bit about that part of your journey and what it entailed? Well, I was doing a Bachelor of Business Management when I broke my back and rather than just sort of letting that go by the wayside, I continued and finished that. And then when I decided I just never wanted to be indoors again, you know, like three months flat on my back, watching the world go by out the window, I was like, Mm. never again. And a rock climbing, like an adventure-based company in Adelaide called Venture Corporate Recharge, they were looking for someone to do their marketing for them. So I said I would do their marketing plan in return for them training me to become a rock climbing instructor. So... So good. Awesome. Yeah, so we sort of did a trade and then they did team building and leadership programs with corporate groups and juvenile offenders and school groups and general public. Like they did everything. And so I just got trained in a lot of different things. So I did rock climbing and then um, kayaking and sailing and bushwalking and got all my first aid qualifications. It just sort of moved from there. Um, And then... At that time, the government released a mandate saying that if there were females present on an outdoor program, there had to be female guides present. And there was only three of us in Adelaide at the time who were qualified. So I could have booked every day, three days over, and I just wow. worked nonstop. Yeah, it was perfect timing. Wow. So is this where your stunt career stemmed from? through the adventure space? Yes and no. Like, I think what happened when the doctor told, like, me this was my life sentence, I then went, well, how far can I push this? Uh, so yes. I made the outdoors relatively safe. Like, I make rock climbing safe and abseiling pretty safe, you know, and my body deals with it all. And then I was like, well, how far can I go? And someone suggested doing some stunt performing and I'm like, great. <laughs> like, probably apart from being a firefighter. Had you thought about it before? Never. I didn't even know it was a career. Wow. Like I had no clue. Wow. Yeah. I didn't even think about it much. I watched TV shows and I was just like, that's the actor doing that. Like I just didn't think it. I never had a clue. Right. And someone suggested it and I looked into it and I'm like, you mean I get to play dress ups, you know, cause I loved that as a kid. <laughs> 
and I get to do a bit of acting. I'm not amazing at acting, but I'll do a bit of acting and I get to fight and like do these really physical things. Like it just seemed like the perfect career. So um, how did you get into it from that point? Well, there wasn't much going on in Australia at the time. And so I headed over to Vancouver because I could do a work exchange thing and um, just wandered around and said to anyone who'd listen, I was doing more climbing stuff. I was like, I want to be a stunt performer. And they were like, okay, all right. And I'm like, no, I want to be a stunt performer. Like, how can I be a stunt performer? And finally, someone's like, that guy at the bar over there, he's a stunt performer. Why don't you go and ask what? him? So I went over and I was like, excuse me, sir. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I want to be a stunt performer and how can I do it? And he sort of looked me up and down and he's like, well, do you know anything about it? I was like, no. He's like, do you have a headshot? And I'm like, what's a headshot? Like I had oh no gosh. clue. <laughs> and then um, he, just to his credit, gave me some advice and a couple of phone numbers of some people that could help train me and I just went from there. Wow. wow. What training What training did you do? Like, What did you have to do to actually you know, make your mark or get your first break? Yeah, well, you get into stunts via gymnastics or fighting usually. They're sort of the two core things. And at 27, I was too old to get into stunts to begin with. (laughs) But apart from that, I was definitely too old to be an Olympic level gymnast. So um, I just went straight into the martial arts avenue. And for some reason, all my life, I know it sounds weird, but weapons and fight movement have just come very naturally to me. And I just... I just loved it, like trained every day I could and, and that, that became my thing. I was quite tall for a um, Canadian female. I'm quite short for an Australian, but um, <laughs> so there wasn't many tall women who were fighting at that stage in Vancouver. And then um, Sharon Stone came to town and she needed a second double for Catwoman, um, a kickboxing double, and, and I just walked straight into that, which was amazing. Wow. That's actually insane. So what is the most memorable stunt that you have ever done? Yeah, so on X-Men 3, um, Magneto is like throwing these cars up in the air because he's got magnetic powers and then Pyro is like exploding them and then the cars are falling down into this tiny courtyard of Alcatraz. And if you watch the movie, it looks like these little cartoon ants are like running around in the courtyard, but that's actually us. So the gag is that we have, like, they throw two or three real cars in the air, petrol bombs explode them, and then these cars are landing in this courtyard, but you can't predict it because the petrol bombs, like, sent them off in all these different directions. So we're just standing underneath these falling cars, just being like, wait, wait, where's it going to go? Where's it going to go? And then we did about four takes of that, and one of the cars went completely off into the safety barrier and stuff. But then the final take, the stunt coordinator says to me, like, I'd really like someone to be dragged backwards during this. And I'm like, oh my, my hands God. are way down for that one. And he was just like, <laughs> Kai, I want you to be at the front of the pack and you're going to be dragged backwards by two people who then can't see where the cars are. So I'm just like, as we're running, I'm like, left, right, because I'm trying to direct them as these cars are landing. And then this one car just landed down in front of us and started to end over end towards us. And I'm like, run and I'm like picking up my legs and I'm pushing backwards as fast as I could to try and get them to run faster and we crashed like we ran through this safety barrier just as the car sort of crashed into it and I was just like and then I thought it would look so spectacular in the movie and then you look at it and you're like it could be it could be a cartoon it didn't even need to be us wow (laughs) I was gonna say like does it change the way that you watch movies now knowing that the actors don't do the stunts and that's you guys in there and knowing what goes into it 
Oh, it certainly does. I spoil movies for way too many people as I'm like, that's the stunt double. You can tell by her wig. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you can generally tell. Well, yeah. now the CGI, so, you yeah. know. Well, it also depends how good a double they are because, like, with Jamie Alexander, I might not look like her here, but when I've got a little bit of makeup on and they do the eyebrows, you can film me face on for her. So there's, like, this sequence on the day I actually first tore my hamstring where I do a massive fight scene. Sequence. And then, like, I stop like this as the person somersaults around in front of me from a kick that I do, and it's just me. Like, they never oh put her face God. in. Yeah, I feel like if you slow it down, you're kind of like, oh, hang on a minute. But I just look enough like her that they just don't, yeah, they just didn't even bother putting her in it. <laughs> wow. Wow. Way. Mm. I mean, you did stunts for 16 years. You doubled for actresses like Sharon Stone, Jennifer Garner, Jessica Biel, who I always wanted to train, FYI. I think she'd be really fun. <laughs> and Anne Hathaway. In 2011, you won the Taurus World Stunt Award for the best stunt performed by a female for your work in Thor. For those of you who are listening and don't know what it is, like those stunt awards are like the Oscars of the stunt world. What did it mean to you to get that award? I mean, that was huge. Like even you just saying yeah. it, like I've lived with it for years. <laughs> even you just saying with it, I get like chills again, you know. I mean, it oh, was wow. It's one of those things when I started in stunts, I didn't dream that big, you know, like yeah. that – that was one of those things I was like, yeah, other people get those awards. Like, I'll never get one of those. So I'll just want to do a good job. I want to double like a, a female superhero for the entirety of a movie. And that was my goal. And I even going into the stunt awards, like I'd been nominated and I just never dreamed I'd win. I was like, oh, it's going to be one of those really embarrassing moments where you sit there and you have to like go, and someone else gets called <laughs> try, try and look really supportive as you go like, oh, no. <laughs> terrible. <laughs> but um, yeah, like when they called my name, I just can remember just not even being able to breathe. And I walked up on stage and they tried to hand me the award and I wouldn't take it. It was like, they're like, here you are. And I'm like, no, 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 you just hold no, it. It's the weirdest thing. I had a speech prepared, but I was like, it was really hard to get out to thank all the people that I really wanted to thank. Like so many people took me on that journey and helped me along the way. And like it was, yeah, it was a really surreal moment. Oh my God. I love Love that. Yes. When it comes to stunts, like obviously every stunt is completely different. You've got a fighting background. Is the training different for every role that you go into? And do you do specific things that are about injury prevention? Because obviously this isn't just about you performing at a stunt. It's also about you being able to perform at the stunt without getting injured. Yeah, 100%. So I always do, I've always said like I do yoga so that I bend and I don't break. Like the more flexible that I am, when I'm going to hit something, um, I, I relax my body and just trust that it's flexible enough to deal with whatever it has to deal with. And then I am always really careful of my diet. Um, I like to put a lot of collagen in, um, like a lot of magnesium. I really do try with the supplements, whatever someone's saying about muscle recovery. I do try and do that, drink a lot of water. Um, and then, yeah, every, every stunt is different. So I had a kickboxing background 
But, you know, on Electra, she was using a psi weapon, and which is like a three-pronged weapon, and I hadn't used that before, so I got specific training. And then, you know, like every fight sequence has a fight coordinator who has a different background. So they might have karate or taekwondo or zendu kai or whatever, you know, and they're coming into that with that sort of background. So then I get trained on set to, to fight like they want the character to fight and move like they want the character to move. But I think that's one of the things I'm most proud about with blind spot is that I helped design the way she moved and her character and how she fought you know so that was an unusual circumstance but yeah normally I get told how to move like that character and trained like that. Let's talk about fear like have you ever done a stunt that you were like I might not make it out of this how do you manage or harness the fears in those situations? Um yeah quite often, you know, and it's usually the smaller stunt that you end up hurting yourself on, like, because, you know, you're just like, oh, I I trip and fall down today and you don't think about it. But um, there's definitely been some that I'm like, oh, I probably should have said goodbye to mum a bit nicer today, you know, like, (laughs) I hope I remember to say I love you at the end of that phone conversation. And it sounds silly, but... They're the things that go through your mind. Right, but it's the truth, you know, like many stunts, if I'm two inches off in this direction, that's me gone. You know, I did a lot of big wire stunts and you're flying through the air and you've got breakaway stuff here, but if you're like a foot to this side, then that's all real stuff. So there's definitely been days where you're just like, oh, okay, well, this could be it today, but at least I'm doing something I love. <laughs> a spectacular story. I don't, I don't know. Wow. How, if you put yourself in a situation or in a stunt that you're like, oh, my gosh, like I'm actually really concerned about this, like what's that self-talk? Like the first thing is like that really, like I have a saying in one of my talks where it's like if you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. Yeah. And then I always stutter over it because I also am highly aware that you can't fly if you jump off and flap your wings, you know, no matter how hard you think you can, that's never going to work. So there's definitely situations that saying doesn't work for, right? But I am just like... The first thing I have to do is 100% believe in myself and my ability to do that stunt. And for me, that's rehearsing, rehearsing, rehearsing. Like I'm the person that's visualising and rehearsing the whole time. Like if I've got a 50-move fight sequence, I'm just in the corner going like just going through it in my head. And if I have to leap over a fence, I will have gone to the gym the night before and just like leapt over things higher than that. Like, so preparation is probably a really big one for me for dispelling fear. Like if I've Mm. done the best I can to prepare for something, then I'm going to be less nervous about it going in. Totally. And the other thing is like, I recognize my inner voices. And I think that honestly, like fear is a character in your head Mm. and fear is there is a survival technique, you yeah. know? Like if you're going to go into a dark cave, it's that voice that's like, hey, there might be a saber-toothed tiger in here, like perhaps don't go in the cave. And that's that's the people that survived were the people that listened to that little voice. And so mm. I've just trained myself to not listen to that voice. <laughs> like I've just been like, <laughs> like I hear you, but 
what you're saying isn't going to be useful to me right now. You know, like yeah. I hear that me going backwards off this building is not usually a really good survival technique, <laughs> but I've done everything I can to make it safe and I've committed to it. So it's going to happen and, and fear is not useful in that situation. Fear creates hesitancy and if I'm hesitant, I miss my mark, you know. So yeah. Yeah. those sort of things are really recognised in the end, you know, like listen to that inner voice, acknowledge it, but then I sort of put it in a box if it's not going to be useful to me. Mm. I mean, look, aside from visualisation and preparation, because, you know, when it comes to your job, those are the things that are going to save your life when it comes down to the wire, really. Mm-hmm. Are there any other accessories that you would use to perform at your best in stressful situations? Um, in practice, you know, like I'm yeah. very uh, a person that spends a lot of time being uncomfortable and that's not as in like I'll walk on nails or hot coals or anything but I put myself in situations that most people will find uncomfortable or unnerving and and to be honest for me that's public speaking (laughs) (laughs) I'm just putting it Jenna because she's like discomfort equals growth and we come across it every time in the podcast (laughs) that's her yeah Yeah, (laughs) you're on another level of that so (laughs) (laughs) For me, I probably would have said the biggest discomfort for me previously was not feeling good enough. Mm. You know, like you can do... You can do so many things. Like I got a World Taurus Stunt Award and I... You know, I started stunts at 27 when everyone said I was too old and I performed on some of the biggest action movies that were made in that time and I finished my career working on um, a TV show called Blind Spot where I... It probably should have had two female doubles. It was some of the best fighting I've ever done. I was 42, you know, too old for stunts at 27, and I was doing this incredible role on this TV show, and I I never felt good enough. Like I was always just, yeah, so that was probably something that made me really uncomfortable because I was like, what do I have to do, like, to feel good enough? Um, But then I went and spent 21 days in the Amazon alone, and now I feel fine. (laughs) We'll get to that. We'll get to that. But do you reckon um, blind spot was where you tore your um, hamstring completely off the bone? Do you reckon your discomfort at that stage, was that a catalyst to potentially how this injury came about? Yeah, 100%. Like, I mean, there was a combination of things. One, it was I felt like I wasn't replaceable. Like I doubled Jamie Alexander for 10 years um, and I was just like, no one else can do this job. And I didn't want to let anybody down by by resting that hamstring because I tore it halfway through the season and then it just slowly tore off over a spate of like, yeah, like another 11 episodes. Oh, currently <laughs> so, lying on the floor. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. That yeah. sounds horrific. And if anyone knows what a torn hamstring is like, it's, yeah, you can't explain. I, I tore my gluten hamstring but n- definitely not off the bone like that. That's just... I mean, you've got yeah. four butt screws, right? I mean, yeah. that sounds oh, really yes. that sounds really dirty, but I didn't mean it to come in like that. Like, I do have do you butt set screws. Off metal detectors? I don't, but you know what? Don't I've you. got this new technology. 
and they keep thinking I've got something in my back pocket. So I do think that technology is picking up my screws now. That's funny because I went to the CrossFit regionals after I had my hip replacement and I walked through the gate and they do like the manual metal detector and I don't set it off at the airport, but this one, like oh, at yeah. the thing, it went off blaring and you've got security running over and I'm like, I've got a hip replacement, I've got a hip replacement. And they're like, whatever, you have not, like I don't look like I should have a hip replacement. Of like, course, yeah. it's in the area of my pocket, they thought I was carrying and I like stopped the whole regionals and I was like, yeah. more. She's, she's got a, had a hip replacement. She's carrying something. It was yeah. so, yeah, not good. But look, I can only imagine by this stage it's been such a, it's been a cumulative injury and then not only have you, you've been injured and then you've just let it get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse to the point where it's completely kind of detached. What was the recovery process for that? Because it sounds really <sighs> long and painful. Mm. Yeah, so I think that was probably the thing that was hardest for me is I just thought, you know, I, it would they'd just screw it back on again. <laughs> that would be good to go. But it it's like up. it's a pretty big muscle and it's like yeah. a pretty serious area that it's all attached to. And um, the people that did the surgery in New York, they weren't used to doing that surgery. Oh, wonderful. It's a running, kicking injury. Mm. Yeah, so um, Australian surgeons are really good at it because running, kicking, that's AFL football. So that quite happens quite a bit that it tears off at the proximal bone there. Um, But in America, it's American football, so they do shoulders really well. They don't do hamstrings. And so the guy fixed it and it was like, I had to have it operated on again is the long and short and they had to recut it off and reattach it three years later. But still, like, the day before I, the day before that I had that surgery, I was racing a guy out of a high-altitude mountain in China, you know, like on another TV show. So of course you were. My, my, when I'm like, oh, this really is not working properly, I mean, it's still working <laughs> to a degree. But, yeah, it, it probably is just going to be one of those ones that follows me through life, but it doesn't stop me from doing anything, so I'm not too worried. Dear God, I mean, was that injury kind of like your lowest point and almost the catalyst for your retirement from stunts? It really was. You know, like I wanted to be a stunt performer until I was 40. Everyone I met over 40 has their, or every female, or had their neck vertebra fused. And so, like, you sit down and you talk to them and they're turning like this. And oh. so you your necks cop a lot of abuse. And most older stunt women have real great neck problems and I'm like geez at 40 I could have over half my life left like why would I why would I do a career that left me in that state so I'd aimed for 40 I had started doing the survival stuff as my backup career like I'd already sort of started implementing Mm. all of that written the book and but I just couldn't let it go you know I love the feeling of it I love the feeling of doing a fight sequence and I love the feeling of yeah when someone says action, just like everything happens and, you know, you get to like be in these cool outfits doing this cool stuff and then the director's like, cut! And, you you know, you see that you've matched his vision to to your action oh. and, like, there's a really, there's no feeling like it. So I probably wouldn't have walked away um, and I needed to. So, yeah. So you're kind of forced to walk yeah. away. <laughs> yeah. Universe forced in a wheelchair. you to walk away. <laughs> yeah, in a wheelchair. <laughs> 
As far as being the lowest point, it was a really interesting time for me because for years and years and years, like for three years before getting into stunts and 16 years of stunts, all I had ever wanted to do and had defined myself as was a stunt performer. I spent three years doing stunts before I even said I was a stunt woman because I felt like it was important to really have done a lot in the job. And then, you know, it was something I was extremely proud of. You know, when people are like, what do you do? I'm like, stunt woman, you know, like, and then <laughs> I, felt, I felt like if I wasn't a stunt woman anymore, who was I? And I think I probably had a little bit of an identity crisis around that. So I'm pretty good with injuries and I'm pretty good with being fairly optimistic in the face of a doctor's diagnosis. But the the whole daunting idea of who was I if I wasn't that was probably the low point for me. So you've taken part in the most extreme survival shows. Yes. Let's talk about Naked and Afraid, of which you've done four seasons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what is it about this really hardcore genre of survival that draws you in? So the first one, um, I had hiked across the Sierra Nevadas with a pocket knife and realised I probably didn't have the skills that it took to survive on that, but then I learned a lot more. <laughs> and then Discovery called me up and I'd been trying to get into the host space, you know, like the, I looked at reality TV, my young cousin, my young female cousins all wanted to be Paris Hilton's BFF or be like Kim Kardashian and I was like, right, we need some strong female role models in the reality TV world. So I I'd sort of started moving into that area and there was no female Bear grills per se, you know, like, and I was like, right, I'm going to be the female Bear grills, You know, <laughs> he got generations of, of people back into the outdoors, you know, and that's that yeah. Steve Irwin passion for it, you know, like I felt like we needed a female with that passion and vibe for the outdoors. Um, and Discovery called me up and they're like, hey, we're doing this TV show. Um, no one's ever heard of it before. It's the first season. We're looking for six couples to to survive. Stay with us, stay with us. It's called Naked and Afraid. And I was like, no, thank you. <laughs> and then they called me back and they're like, it's pixelated. No one will ever see anything. Um, and I was like, yeah, yeah but you were still crew. naked. <laughs> yeah, the yeah. camera crew is going to see me. No, thank you. And then um, they, and then I got off the phone and I was holidaying in Byron Bay at the time. And I'm like, you know, I've always wanted to be the Swiss family Robinson. Like I've always wanted to be on a deserted <laughs> island and make a tree house and find my bananas. And, you know, like it's just been like this thing where I'm like, suddenly someone's offering me this opportunity to start from scratch in a relatively safe way. Like if you get injured, you've got a production mm. company there that's going to ship you out as fast as they can. And so uh, I said yes. And Did you have a problem with being naked? I did, yeah. Like I'm not a nudist and I was super insecure about my body and like I wouldn't walk around the house naked and I thought, well, this might be a chance to get used to being naked and feeling good about being naked. <laughs> I, was like, I love that you flipped that though. I know. Oh, but it was like 
even now when they're like, okay, take your clothes off, I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> it's that <laughs> awful moment. And you're like, it never gets any easier, you know. It just makes me off. nervous. Yeah, I know. I mean, yeah. you've done four seasons because I know like that you did one which was like Naked and Afraid of Sharks where you literally competed what? with sharks for food. Sharks are my like biggest fear. I have really? never even swum in Australian waters, yeah, because I'm absolutely yeah. freaking terrified. And I always thought that, like, you attract the energy you put out. So if I'm in there and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to get eaten by a shark, then all of a sudden, like, the sharks feel that energy and they're like, yeah, there's someone out here to be eaten. <laughs> She's in here, all... finally. <laughs> However, you'll be happy to know I did actually get in a cage wow. to try and face my fear, and I actually loved it. And I was like, even though I definitely still wouldn't want to be in the water, I can totally understand why people get into shark conservation because it was just an incredible moment. But what was the absolute worst situation that you've ever found yourself in? I can imagine there'd be plenty, given that it's called Naked and Afraid. (laughs) And how did you handle it? (laughs) So I choose my Naked and Afraids carefully now to be a a worthwhile challenge. Like a lot of people just do a 40-day or a 60-day or this or that, but I choose them very carefully. So I loved sharks and I knew that they would really hype up the fear around sharks. So I went out to be that one that's like, I love sharks, let's swim with sharks, you know. Um, So that wasn't a real issue. Um, And then, but I did 21 days alone in the Amazon and it was the end of wet season And the location they put me in was brutal. Like not all locations are created equal. And this one had no food. So I'm I'm there and I don't have any fishing equipment. And the only food source is fish. And I'm trying to collect these nuts that the monkeys are eating, but there's only like a tiny bit of flesh. And then about day nine, I I realised there's some some cacao nuts there and there's firefly larvae in the cacao nuts. So I'm eating these like larvae, which are tiny witchetty grubs, but they're delicious. Like it tastes like nutty because they're in the nut and you are what you eat, Mm. right? So I'm like, I'm I'm so excited about these nuts. And then like day 18, I I go out at night and I make a torch and I machete two tiny fish. So I have busted my ass in the Amazon and it's day 19. I have to go and build a raft. But all I've eaten is maybe 15 firefly larvae, few monkey nuts and two tiny fish. And I get to this place where they're like, okay, this is where you have to make the raft. And they're like, and this person's told us that this tree will make a great raft. And I'm like, great. It's like wider than my waist. I start to try and cut it down. It's really thick. And I'm like, this is not going to flow. I've got this dull machete at this stage. So I spend like hours cutting this tree down and I cut a chunk out of the tree and I take and I carry it down to the water and it sinks. And I'm just like... Mm. I'm like, I just knew it. And then they all consult each other and then she's like, oh, well, this tree's going to work. This one will work. <laughs> and I was like, oh, God. And I, like, macheted that tree down. I'm like, yeah, but if I cut that one down, it's going to land on that tree over there. And they're like, do you want to quit? I'm like, no. So I, like, macheted that tree down. It lands in that tree. I have to cut that tree down. So now I've cut three trees down on two fish and, you know, a handful of lava. In 19 days. <laughs> in 19 days. I'm so tired. And then I go to bed and I make a shelter 
temporary shelter because I've had to leave my other one and it falls down on me in the night and it's raining and I get hypothermic and I'm just like there's all this stuff going on and the next day I wake up and I have to continue to cut down the trees and then I have to make a, a raft so I've cut down this other tree that they've said will float and I put it in the water and it barely floats so I can't sit on it because I'm up to my boobs in the water if I'm sitting on this raft and I have to swim it out so I go on my oh, belly my and I'm basically submerged in water, but just out enough that I can move my arms. So I'm sitting there and I'm looking out at the path I have to go into the river and this massive caiman, which is like one of the largest oh, alligator no. species, floats oh, into no. that section and then sinks. No. And so now I'm like, I turn to production, I'm like, that was a caiman. And they're like, do you quit? Oh, oh my and I'm God. Like, Right, and I pushed the raft into the water and then I was just like, as I was swimming out that, I was just like, please don't bite me, please don't bite me. As I was like swimming out. Oh, my gosh. And I get to the main river and the direction they want me to go is upstream. (laughs) So... I'm just like, I paddled. I've never gone so far into my head to achieve something. And I just kept saying to myself, like, can I do one more stroke? Yeah, I can. One more? Yep. One more. And I'd count to 100 and then I'd start again and I'd count to 100 and I'd start again. And I was just like, as long as I could, I would. And it was the most amazing thing to realise. Like, I thought I reached my limits building these rafts and I paddled like this for four hours non-stop because if I stopped I went backwards and that's when I got all cut up because I had to drag my raft through some thorns and now I'm bleeding in the in the Amazon with the piranha and I'm just like yeah I and I did it and I'm just like how? Oh, like to this God. day. Hi, that's because you're Crocodile Dundee. Yes, exactly. is going to stop you. <laughs> oh, my God. If you could only see us in the studio, <gasps> me, Alexa and I cringing our heads off Holy right now. Holy mother of God. I mean, how, mm. how do you prep? For, I was exactly yeah, what I was going to say. How on earth for do you that? prep? <laughs> I don't think you can. Like I've always been searching for my limits. You know, like I think ever since that doctor said this is the limits that I put on you. I've been like, well, is it though? And then I'll like, I've never gotten to the stage where I've fallen down and haven't got back up again. So this was that time. I was like, well, maybe I'm going to find this point in me now. And I, I didn't, you know, like um, it's really hard for me to watch actually because I didn't cry the whole 21 days um, and it was a series called Alone. I was the only female out of four females that they put out there that made the 21 days and I was the only participant that didn't break down within the show itself. But, God, I got onto that boat and I it is hard to watch. Like I've gone so far into my head to achieve this that it's, it's like these sobs of like <laughs> trying to find who I was again and where I was again, you know, after achieving that. So it was, it was interesting. Wow. If we go a little bit further there, like we're talking, this is real primal here. Mm. There has mm. to be certain elements of like, you know, primal human performance mm. at play. Now, I know that you were a vegetarian for a good proportion of your life because you were diagnosed with hemochromatosis, which is essentially an overload of iron in the body, right? Mm-hmm. How did you know that you even had something going on in your body? Like what sort of gave you an indication that something wasn't quite right? 
So I got diagnosed with hemochromatosis and doctors said I shouldn't eat red meat or else I'd have to donate blood. And the symptoms of hemochromatosis are you get really yellow. So like I would go on set and I'd have like yellow, what looked like yellow eyeshadow and the makeup artists are trying to scrub this yellow eyeshadow off my eyes and stuff. So, you you know, I'd get, and my hands would be really yellow, like you'd see it. It was kind of more a visual thing and I would, I'd be very, very tired. So the doctor said I had to be vegetarian. And so huh. I, I was vegetarian for 20 years, but then I just noticed things like the first Naked and Afraid it took me three years to recover from like both hormonally and every time I'd try and train, my muscles would tear and I was very weak. Like it took a long, long time to recover from. And then somebody suggested who, someone was a carnivore and they suggested that hemochromatosis could be cured with a carnivore diet. So I literally was like vegetarian and then the next day I woke up and I ate three steaks. And I was just like, right, now we're doing, we're doing this meat thing and, and haven't eaten many vegetables at all for the last, like, Three years? Wow. And um, it, that turned my health around. For me, I know, like I at 39, I did my first Naked and Afraid as a vegetarian. It took me three years to recover from. My hormones, my weight fluctuated. And I've just recently done one at 48. I go in, I'm strong throughout the whole thing. I walk out, I start eating meat and... A week later, I'm 100% and I don't get the ups and downs. I don't get any of the hormonal issues. I don't get any of the health issues. And I start training the day I walk out. I'm going to say there has to be something in that because you hunt your own food, right? Yeah. I do. Yeah, you hunt your own food. So you go into these I, shows I try. like, well, yeah. <laughs> as a vegetarian, you're eating firefly larvae and nuts. But as a huntress, you're going in there and you're able to like kill animals and eat them. That sounds really barbaric mm. when I say it like that. But, I mean, you get my drift, right? So it's... Yeah. yeah. Well, I became a hunter um, when I decided to eat meat yeah. because I thought it's the most sustainable way of procuring meat. Um, I thought if I'm going to eat it, I'm going to hunt it. And then I um, thought, well, how am I going to hunt it? And I picked up a gun and I was like, no. And I picked up a compound bow, which has got lots of pulleys and things. And I was like, mm-mm. And I picked up a recurve, which is like the simplest sort of yeah. traditional bow that you can get. And I'm like, this is my weapon. And then I just trained for like a year before I ever went out to try and put an um, arrow in an animal. And I went out once with... Um, a guy hunting goats and he sort of just showed me the ropes and then I spent the next three weeks by myself on my cousin's property where I am right now in a corner where no one was and I spent three weeks just living off what I hunted. Oh, my um, gosh. And God. Yeah. So <laughs> speaking of that preparation for something like that, would the prep for your show include kind of trying to emulate the conditions mm. that you would have yeah. in the wild? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I'm mostly barefoot, but feet are one of the biggest things. If your feet go, then you're not your survival goes down dramatically. You know, if you can't walk to get water, can't walk to get firewood, can't walk to get food. So um, I'll start mm. walking on rocks, walking on bitumen a lot, just walking on any surfaces tough with my feet up. That's one of the main ones. And then I strip every chemical out of my diet. So I go to really basic, really simple, like sugar, no sugar, no caffeine, keep it super, super simple. Yeah. And it really works for me. Like um, this last one I went on, one of the participants was drinking coffee and have, smoking cigarettes till the second he went in and he had a really hard time for the first four days on um, chemical dependency. Um, so the main thing is just 
rid myself of all things that I probably won't get out there. So I just go really simple, meat and sometimes some veggies. Um, and then, yeah, feet hardening. That's yeah. intense. That is intense. I mean, I feel, I'm a barefoot bandit, so I think I have pretty pretty strong feet, but I think they would definitely yeah. need to harden harden them up a little bit more if I was doing something like that. It depends where you go, though, because I've been in, like, conditions where I don't need. True. Like, the jungle is nice and soft and the swamp is nice and soft and then the beach for yeah. the shark ones was nice and soft, you know. Like, True. I really haven't needed to have tough feet, but... Um, I do have a challenge coming up soon that I will need tougher feet for. Oh, so, oh, oh. <laughs> but back to well, it. Wow, wait. All right. So during lockdown, you developed your own TV show with your partner, Outback Lockdown, which is now available to watch on SBS. What's up next for you? Uh, this year's been really amazing for me so far with the world opening back up again. I've got a few projects that I can't talk about, but <laughs> I have a book coming out in August, which is the first um, full survival guide written by a female, which I'm super excited about. Um, it's got everything that's me in it, 650 pages, so it's a bit thick. But Whoa. Yeah, it was a good challenge. And then I've just been asked to do a commercial for um, a quite a recognisable company, so that'll be coming out. And I have completed the first of at least two survival challenges that I've got um, coming out for you this year um, already. So, again, I can't give you much information about that, but there will be two episodes I'm super proud of coming out in, in the later Big in the year. Big things coming. Big yeah. things coming. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, look, I mean, you know, one of the biggest things that Jen and I had issues with in terms of this particular podcast was that yes. you have done so many incredible things throughout the course of your life that we were like, oh, my God, how do we how? fit all of this in and what do we leave out and what do we put in? Like, we needed, like, a whole couple of days to actually talk to you about <laughs> stuff, but... Over, you know, over the course of your career, I've heard that you say that the best piece of advice that you were ever given was to go passionately in the direction of your dreams. And it's really clear that you've just followed your heart when it comes to your success. But, you know, translating passion into a career can be really challenging for most people. What would you tell people out there who are just trying to figure life out and give it a red hot crack? Just start. Like, that's the hardest thing. You know, like I have so many people come up to me and say, I really want to be this. I really want to be that. Really. And the difference between the people who do it and the people that don't is the people who do it generally start somewhere, anywhere. Like don't be afraid of what you might perceive as failure because it's not failure. If you've tried something, you haven't failed. You've just found a way that might not work and you need to find a different way of doing it. You know, I got a million no's nobody believed in my dream, you know. Like I was out there going, I want to be a stunt performer. And they're like, oh, you're too big because I was really jacked, big muscles from being an outdoor guide. You're too old, you know. Um, no actress is going to want you to double them. You don't have any transferable skills. I got more no's than I got encouragement. And it's just what you do with those no's. Like do you let them be the roadblocks for the rest of your life or do you let them be the thing that lights that fire in your belly and makes you go like, well, I'm going to show you, like, don't you put your limits on me. Like, just just find a way around those no's and, and begin. Just begin anywhere, even if it's the wrong place to begin or it doesn't take you down the road you want to go down. Just take that first step is probably the biggest thing. Oh, couldn't think of a better way to really <laughs> end the full podcast. Body, full body gooses. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> You're just one of those people that comes along, like, once 
in a lifetime that you get to pick the brain of and have, you know, chats and have the knowledge bombs that you've dropped today. So, you know, thanks for taking the time out of your day and finding the reception on the cattle station that you're in Outback <laughs> Australia right now to talk with us. We really appreciate it. Oh, 100% <laughs> and guys, I 100% encourage you guys to dive deeper into Kai's journey because, oh, my gosh, is it big. And you've achieved so much. And it has been such a pleasure talking to you. So thank you so much. Lovely chatting with you guys too. How Fitness Saved My Life is hosted by me, Action Alexa. And me, Jenna Louise. Producer, Tina Madelov. Audio production by Nikki Sitch. And executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. Listener.